0: Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Hi, I'm Kip Tindall, uh, Chairman and CEO of the Container Store, and uh, I I can't think of a more timely and important relative topic to today's business community than conscious capitalism. And um, John Mackey uh, is, uh, well, I consider John to be really the father of the whole conscious capitalism uh, movement. It's something that he's very passionate about. And I'm very passionate about, and you're really in for a treat to listen to John talk about uh, what conscious capitalism means to him and Whole Foods and the business community at large. Um, I considered it a privilege to introduce him. John and I met at University of Texas uh, uh, years ago. And um, um, I thought at the time, you know, this guy, this John Mackey guy, I think he's probably the most interesting kid at UT. And, and now today I think, you know what, this John Mackey guy... I think he's probably still the most interesting guy in Austin, you know? And so it's, um, <clears throat> John is, um, he's done more I think to, when you really stop and think about it, he's done more to really lengthen the lifespan of Americans than, than anyone in the country. Uh, he understands the link between uh, diet and nutrition and, and health uh, perhaps better than anybody in the country. He's not only afforded what, what Whole Foods serves to lengthen the lifespan of of Americans. He's also radically altered what the major Walmarts of the world sell in their stores for food products, and I think that's just a a wonderful achievement. In fact, John was named by Fortune Magazine recently as one of the 12 greatest entrepreneurs of our time, and um, I am so excited for everybody in the room to get the privilege of hearing my buddy John Mackey talk about conscious capitalism, which is my favorite topic. John Mackey.
0: That's, a, that's an unusual introduction. I've never been called the most interesting person in Austin. I'm very sure when I was 21 years old, I was not particularly interesting at UT. Uh, what Kip didn't tell you was when we were housemates, I used to routinely play poker with Kip, and he just beat me like a drum. And I, could, I thought he was cheating, because I, you know, I just couldn't figure out how this kid guy was beating me every single time. But... Uh, that's my one tip for you. Don't play poker with Kip Tindall. Uh, <clears throat> it's great to be here in Dallas. I forgot, uh, uh, forgot how well dressed everybody is in Dallas. That's one thing I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Dallas is now better dressed than New York. New York's got a much more casual business culture. Um, but let me talk a little bit about, uh, well, I'm going to talk about my book, obviously. I'm going to talk about conscious capitalism. Can people hear me okay? Yeah, I'm kind of soft-spoken. So let me just kind of start out by saying I'm like this, I'm a very passionate capitalist. And when we were researching our book, we found out some very interesting things that most people don't know. People do not have any real historical perspective on where the world was before capitalism was invented. Capitalism really got started about 200 years ago, 210, 215 years ago. And consider some fascinating statistics that we discovered in our research. 200 years ago, 85% of everyone alive on the planet Earth lived on less than $1 a day. And that's in today's dollars, 85%. That number's dropped down to 16%. That's 16% too high, but it's remarkable the progress made in 85 years. And there are people I'm looking around the room, there are people here young enough that you'll probably see the end of poverty on the planet Earth, or abject poverty, sometime in the 21st century if we continue to embrace the principles of economic freedom. Second thing, illiteracy. 200 years ago, 90% of the people alive on the planet Earth were illiterate. And that percentage has dropped down to 14%. We will probably also eliminate uh, Illiteracy, or you know, except for people that might have reading disabilities, sometime also in the 21st century, the average lifespan 200 years ago was the same as it had been for the previous 40,000 years, based on the evidence. It was 30 years. That's how long you could expect to live. 30 years. Today, that's 68 across the world, 78 in the United States, almost 82 in Japan. And outcome after outcome, human beings basically lived in the dirt, in squabble, and life was nasty, brutish, and short. And then capitalism was created. And with the Industrial Revolution, humanity began to lift itself up. So capitalism has done these amazing things, and yet it has a terrible reputation. It is blamed by the intellectuals. The intellectuals, make no mistake about it, the intellectuals don't like capitalism and they don't like business people. And you know what? They never have liked business people. If you study the history, you'll see the business people have always been held in disdain by both the elites that ran the societies as well as the intellectuals. And there have been almost no exceptions to this, except for a brief period of about 40 years when capitalism first got started, for a little while the intellectuals embraced it. And then with Karl Marx and others, the the old critiques of business people basically being selfish and greedy and exploitative came back into the uh, mainstream consciousness. Um, Consider the fact that the people that have mostly engaged in business a lot of times these were the minorities in a society. In the West it was the Jews and in the East it was the Chinese. These are the most two most persecuted races in the history of this planet. And The Jews were routinely run out of country after country after country for no better reason than they just became economically successful. They were smart, and they worked hard, they educated their kids well and they got ahead and that was intolerable and so they would have to be routinely occasionally uh, their property would be stolen and they'd be pushed into some other country. Same thing happened to the Chinese all through the East. In fact, even we're of course more familiar with the persecution of the Jews as great business people, but the Chinese persecution has been actually worse. If you study the places and places like uh, Malaysia and Indonesia and Taiwan and Korea uh, Thailand, uh, Vietnam. The Chinese were the business class, the Chinese were routinely persecuted. So, capitalism and business have created this tremendous uplifting of of humanity. But you know what the approval rating is of business in the world? I mean in the United States, big business has a 19% approval rating according to Gallup. That means 81% of Americans do not approve of big business. Congress's approval rating is 17 <laughs> percent. So, business is uh, only slightly better. So, part of the reason we wrote the book Conscious Capitalism is we need to change the narrative that's happened. Business is on the defensive; it is on retreat. Regulations are increasing. The but people don't realize are how high taxes are for business. That. Of course, the United States now has the highest corporate income taxes in the entire world. For a long time, we ranked number two behind Japan, but the Japanese cut their uh, corporate taxes below America, so we now stand out as the most highest corporate income taxes. Now, of course, and crony capitalists can get some, like when we just passed the fiscal cliff bill, there were carve-outs for, say, Hollywood, were carve-outs for the alternative energy uh, industry, and they're routinely carve outs if you're politically well connected. As a grocery retailer, um, Whole Foods is not politically well connected, probably just the opposite, in fact. And so we, of course, pay pretty much the full, full load of taxes. When you, and when you add the state and federal taxes, a company like Whole Foods is at a 41% uh, uh, tax rate. Of course, that's not all the taxes, the only taxes that a business pays. And we did. I did some research for our book, and it was sort of, it was quite interesting, that when you start adding the employment taxes together that a business has to pay, when you add property taxes, when you add various excise taxes. I mean, anytime you travel in a city, if you look on your airplane tickets sometime or look at your hotel bill, you see all these different ta- uh, taxes. Every time you get in a taxi, there's all kinds of taxes, and we pay at Whole Foods. We pay more than. We pay more in taxes than we actually retain in profits. So we're well over 50% of our profits uh, are now being paid out to taxes. So businesses is... One of the most interesting statistics we uncovered was that um, uh, (coughs) for most of the history of the United States, if you go back 200 years ago, the United States was an economic backwater. We were one of the poorest countries in the world, but we were also one of the freest. We had unprecedented economic freedom. And as a result, over time, tens of millions of immigrants came to the United States to create a better life for themselves. It's really been America's secret. We've had economic freedom. We've allowed immigration of the best and the brightest and the hardest working and the the, uh, most entrepreneurial people have come over here. And that has helped lift our nation up. For most of our history, we ranked number one in the world in economic freedom, and that's how we lifted ourselves up. As recently as just 13 years ago, the United States on the economic freedom index still ranked number three. We were behind Hong Kong and Singapore, but we were solid number three. You know what we rank today, just 13 years later? Anybody? We've fallen down to number 18. If you want to know why unemployment's at 7.9 percent? If you want to know why per capita income has declined in the last decade, you don't need to look any further than that statistic. As economic freedom declines in our nation, so does our prosperity. And when economic freedom increases, prosperity increases. That's the essence of our political problem. And economic freedom is being limited because business is so disliked and so mistrusted. I mean, <clears throat> anybody here see the documentary? really not a documentary, but it pr- pretended to be, uh, called The Corporation. Anybody watch that? Actually, if you're business people, I don't really recommend it unless you want to see how business is despised, but The Corporation portrays business as a corporations or a bunch of sociopaths. They're just running amuck, Basically, a bunch of selfish, greedy bastards. And that's how business is seen by so much. Rem- we can't wait to dump our toxic chemicals in the rivers. Did you know that over 90% of the murders that you see on television and movies are committed by business men? Very seldom does a business woman commit any murders, but business men commit over 90% of them. Of course, in reality, business people commit less than 1% of all the murders, substantially less than 1% of all the murders, unless your business might be, uh, say, uh, The Sopranos type of business. But, of course, The Sopranos is an interesting metaphor because that's how many people see business as a bunch of gangsters. So one of the reasons we wrote this book is we're going to have to recapture the narrative. If we don't want America to decline, if we don't want our economic freedom to continue to go down the toilet, we're going to have to recapture the narrative. Business people are going to have to get off the defensive, and we're going to start, have to start defending the great value creation that business does in this world because truly business people are the value creators we're the ones that create value not for a few people we create value for customers we create value for our employees we create value for our suppliers we create value for our investors and we create value for the communities that we're in that's why we subtitled our book liberating the heroic spirit of business so we have to change that narrative and one of the things we think we need to do is we need to change um, the way business people themselves think about what they're doing and so in the book we outline four basic tenets and the whole book is organized around the four basic tenets of conscious capitalism so on the one hand what is conscious capitalism well it's capitalism done consciously but then we get beyond that what does it mean to do it consciously and we get into the four tenets the first tenet is is that every business has the potential to have a higher purpose besides just making money? Now, not that there's anything wrong with making money. Business has to make money in order to exist. But think about it for a moment. Doctors are well compensated. They're one of the highest-paid uh, professions in our country. And yet, our doctor's purpose is the doctor's purpose to maximize profits. Is that why they? Is that is that what they teach in medical school? Not that I've heard. I think doctors' purpose is to heal people. Teachers educate. Architects design buildings. Engineers construct things. Journalists may have lost their purpose as well, but theoretically it would be to uncover the truth, not sensationalize random comments a business leader might make from time to time. Uh, <laughs> So the first thing business has to do is start to recognize and start talking about what the higher purpose of the business is. What is the value that business is creating for people? What difference is it making in the world? And every business makes a difference. And and yet it's for, and even the defenders of capitalism too quickly fall into the hands of the critics by agreeing, well, yeah, business is selfish and greedy, of course, but of course through Adam Smith's invisible hand, that all works for the, the common good. If you believe that, you've already, the enemies and the critics, the intellectuals have already won the debate. and Business is already back on its heels trying to defend itself simply through the invisible hand uh, uh, insight that Adam Smith had. So, <clears throat> if profit isn't the business, uh, main purpose of business, then, I mean, one of the ways I like to explain it is that My body cannot exist unless it produces red blood cells. No red blood cells, I'm a dead man. But that doesn't follow that therefore the purpose of my life is to maximize red blood cell production. Instead, I have more transcendent purpose for why I live and what gives my life meaning. And so does each potential business. And so the first thing we have to do in changing the narrative and what we talk about in Conscious Capitalism is find your higher purpose. And the greatest ideals that have animated human beings, um, which Plato identified as the good, the true, and the beautiful, also fall true for what many businesses. The great businesses have great purposes. So you take a business uh, that might be pursuing the good, uh, and that would be a business that really cares about its customers. A container store, in my opinion, is a great example of a business that cares about its customers. Southwest Airlines, another Dallas based company, which they're Um, uh, New York stock call letters is L-U-V for love and is one of the great companies in America is clearly pursuing the good in my mind through their service and their uh, Nordstrom's is another good example Uh, we talk about companies pursuing the true think about Google what's the purpose the higher purpose of Google they say it very clearly organizing the world's information and making it readily accessible how many people have Googled in the last 24 hours? Raise your hand. <clears throat> Thank you. I own stock in Google. <laughs> Other companies in pursuit of that great ideal, such as uh, uh, a company like, uh, well, Wikipedia, nonprofit, is certainly doing that. So is uh, a biotech company like Genentech. Think about how thrilling it must be to discover something no one has ever known before. And through that knowledge, you better huma- you help lift humanity up. It enters into the, the intellectual capital of the human race that allows us to advance as a species. That's what business is doing that's in the pursuit of the true. We talk about the beautiful. That, oftentimes, we associate that with artists who paint pictures or, make, uh, or, or, or uh, might write poetry or do beautiful photography, but we don't relate that with business. But what is Apple Computer? if it's not creating incredibly beautiful technology then that's why it's why it's so successful simple elegant beautiful Uh, and so the iphone is and so is the ipod and the ipad and that company has transformed at least six different industries in the last twenty years from personal computers they transformed retail they transformed retail music the tablet computers is a total revolution. So, a uh, good example. And then we talk about the heroic as the fourth noble ideal that we talk about. Companies that uh, are really changing our world in sort of a heroic way. And any business can become heroic if it's pursuing one of those other three and it reaches certain economies of scope and scale. It begins to change our world in ways that help lift humanity up. So, it becomes heroic. So, now, of course, every business doesn't have to be follow one of these great purposes, but I say it because I want to inspire young entrepreneurs to actually aim for the stars. Um, but every business is capable of a higher purpose besides just making money. And that's what when we have to defend business by talking about the purpose and the value that we are realizing in the world. And that is the first response we need to make. The second tenet of conscious capitalism is is that we create value not for a few. We create value not just for our investors, but we create value for everyone that voluntarily exchanges with the business. So we're creating value for our customers, our employees, our suppliers, our communities, and our investors. The conscious business understands that the stakeholders of an enterprise are all interdependent on one another. They're not separated out in some kind of struggle with each other where you have you're involved in trade-offs, so if you do something good for your employees, that that's coming at the expense of your investors. As as Kip and I both know as retailers, retailing is kind of simple. You hire the very best people you can find, make sure they're very well trained, and then help them to be happy in the workplace. Because happy employees results in giving better service to customers, which creates greater commitment and loyalty to the customers to the business, and through word of mouth helps spread the message about the business so happy employees results in happy customers which helps the business to flourish that results in happy investors happy investors that ends up being good for the society through philanthropy through higher taxes that are paid and so the communities benefit as well so they're all interdependent the conscious business recognizes that runs its business in such a way as to create value for all of its major stakeholders, and when it talks about business, it talks about not only creating shareholder value, but all the other types of value that it creates in the world besides just that. The third tenet that we built the book around and we built the movement around is we need a different type of leadership to run the businesses of the 21st century. It's so much more complex world today than when I was a kid growing up. We're so much more interdependent now. And generally the two major motivations that attracted people into leadership historically have been power and money. And those are still great draws for people. But I want to put a third one out there. That we need leaders who are servant leaders. The conscious business attracts and promotes uh, servant leaders who have a higher degree of emotional intelligence and who have a higher degree of spiritual intelligence and who are basically there to serve the enterprise and help it reach its highest potential. It's a totally different type of motivation and yet that's the kind of leaders that we need. Now some interesting statistics. I'm looking around at this audience. We've got a lot of women here so they're going to like what I'm about to tell you. The, the, the most fascinating transformation is occurring in our society, and most people are not yet aware of it. Um, uh, I'm aware of it because I've been married for 21 years, and so early on I recognized that, that uh, yeah, you know, she's a lot. Her emotional intelligence is so much higher than mine. Her spiritual intelligence is higher. Her communication skills are better. She got Her relationship skills are better. You know, really, she's sort of a superior being. And... Uh, uh, I recognize, that's why I've been happily married, recognizing that. But (laughs) here's some interesting statistics, 60% of all the people in college today are now women. 70% of all people in graduate schools are women. Women are systematically taking over all of the major professions, medicine, accounting, law, and education. This will be the women's century in all of those professions. Forty percent of all privately owned businesses are now owned by women and 70 percent of all startups are owned by women. The challenge for women is to scale. That's something that they haven't figured out how to do that yet. They might need to get some men in in, in subordinate positions to help them do that. (laughs) Men want to scale things up. Build an empire. Build something big. So get your women in charge and the men helping you build the empire. one of the things that's been challenging in corporate America is that love has been in the closet. Men, when they run corporations, think in terms of military war metaphors. Crush the competition. Let's roll over them. You're a dead man. Kill or be killed. Then we've got Darwinian metaphors. This is a game of survival of the fittest we are going to have to evolve beyond that. Uh, so we need a different type of metaphors when we think about organizations. And we need to bring love out of the closet. And women are so much more comfortable, honestly, because they're more relationship-oriented, more have a higher degree of emotional intelligence. Of course, I'm talking in huge generalities, and so some men have very high degree of emotional intelligence and some women do not. I'm talking about, in general, uh and people know what i'm saying is fundamentally true. And so if we create organizations that can unleash love, we will then move into the fourth tenet of the of our uh, of conscious capitalism which is we need to create cultures that really allow human beings to empower themselves to be self-actualized to reach their fullest potential as human beings. You can, and these cultures do not happen automatically. You have to create them. You have to work on them. You have to put in principles uh, such as not managing through fear. In the book, we criticize, for example, how uh, uh, Jack Welch at at, uh, General Electric, they had a policy at General Electric where you get evaluated once a year, and if you fell into the bottom 10%, you just get fired. So you get rid of the losers that way. But if that's the way you're thinking about it, and then you're managing through fear because people are so afraid they might fall into that bottom 10%. And even people that may not be near that might have anxiety about it. When you have a fearful culture, A, you're less innovative. We know from studies of, uh, of creativity that people have to, when, when they're afraid, people contract. So you, we need to move, we have to create organizations where people are not afraid. You don't manage through fear. You don't manage through intimidation. Instead, we manage through care. We manage through love as we create those kind of organizations we have a more humanistic organization where human beings flourish where they don't have to check their humanity at the door and get it when they leave the uh the office to take home with them again instead we'll begin to have more fully uh human human organizations so those four tenets make up the thrust of our book which is business has the potential for higher purpose we manage businesses for all of the stakeholders not just the investors and we do it in a conscious way third we attract and nurture different kinds of leaders leaders who are servant leaders with higher degrees of emotional and spiritual intelligence and fourthly we create cultures that allow human beings to fully flourish and reach their highest potential we can change that nineteen percent approval rating we can transform our corporations in america The millennials, the young people, can start conscious businesses from the very beginning. And as they do, one of the happy things we discovered in our research is that conscious businesses also win economically, not by a little bit. Those of you that are skeptical should start with Appendix A in the book, where we show how the more conscious businesses outperform economically over the last 15 years, the S&P by a 10.5 to 1 ratio. Conscious businesses win. Why? because they have greater customer loyalty because they care about their customers because they have a unleash more creativity from their employee employee base because the employees don't turn over as much they're not afraid they're more innovative the result and because they have a different style of leadership and different types of cultures they win in the marketplace this is the biggest obstacle we have to spread these ideas is people think oh, that sounds good but if you get up against a ruthless killer out there they'll they'll shoot you down that hasn't been the experience of conscious businesses in fact they win in the marketplace which by the way is why I'm absolutely confident that the ideas that we articulate in the book will be seen as common sense 20 or 30 years from now It'll look, the people look back on it and say I don't know why anybody, anybody read that book that's so obvious but of course now it's not so obvious but it will be because the businesses that follow these tenets are going to win in the marketplace they're already winning and as more people start up conscious businesses, they will outcompete the alternative, more traditional types of uh, business organizations. So, I think that I'm going to stop there, and we'll go to the next phase of this. So, thank you very much. As I mentioned, we have a tradition here to give the first question to a student. And Akhil from Jasper High School asks, "What do you think about the Wall Street?" and other bailouts. Is this an issue and were, were you supportive of bailouts
1: such as the GM? Uh,
0: personally, I was not supportive at all. Um, to me, those are examples of crony capitalism. Uh, the, no way the taxpayers should be picking up the, paying for the sins of uh, people who were in Wall Street banks were, in many cases, they were 40, 50, 100 times to one their debt to equity. They were just gambling. and. Uh, I think they should have been allowed to fail it would have been we would have had a very deep recession perhaps even a a depression but the assets would have been bought eventually markets would have cleared and we could have begun our climb back up again on a stronger foundation you have to understand nothing has been solved we have not solved this problem we have still have high unemployment the Federal Reserve right now is just printing money trying to keep this whole thing afloat and uh, we have we have some hard times ahead for our country you're going to be interviewed by three people today, two of which are women, by the way. Lee Cullum and Cheryl uh, will do a great job for you. I'm going to interview Yeah, I later. don't like to interview with women. They're a lot more, have a higher degree of emotional intelligence. They I'm are. really on the defensive the whole time. So you're, you can warm up on them, and then I'll get to you later. Uh, you and I met several years ago at Freedom Fest. So I want you to talk about Freedom Fest, our friends Steve Moore, uh, Steve Forbes, Mark Skousen, et etc. What that means to you and your philosophy. Secondly, though, you and I have a, someone in common, Don Beck, and so talk a little bit about this this h- ability to get higher in the consciousness. And then finally, I guess Michael Strong and Flow, if you want to throw in some Flow. So Flow Beck and Freedom Fest. Okay, uh, <laughs> there'll be no time for no more questions. I'm sorry. Uh, well, Freedom Fest is just a gathering of. Uh, Freedom lovers that occurs in Las Vegas every uh, July, uh, and uh, so if you're interested in that, you should potentially look it up. You can Google that. So you can just Google Freedom Fest, and you can you can look at the website so you can learn about that from there. I've enjoyed going there. I won't be there this year. When my wife and i are going to go to Africa in July. Of course, Mark scousen was horrified when he, when he, he gets me to speak there for free, right? So uh, he was horrified that I wasn't coming. He said, "Can't you change the Africa trip?" I said, well, I could, Mark, but with all due respect, my marriage is more important to me than Freedom Fest. Uh, So anyway, that's Freedom Fest. Uh, Don Beck uh, uh, wrote a book called Spiral Dynamics. He's actually quoted in our book. Uh, And he he studied under uh, a psychologist named Claire Graves, who basically argues that just like Maslow had a hierarchy of needs, people are familiar with that, Graves had a hierarchy of values. He argued that individuals and societies evolve their values over time, and uh, that's very conscious, um, I'm very conscious of that. In fact, that's formed some background of a lot of the uh, things I said about in the book about consciousness, so you can, uh, those of you, uh, well, I reference it. It's too hard to explain the theory, so you'll have to do that research on your own. Third one is flow. Flow has morphed into conscious capitalism. So. We changed the name of FLOW to Conscious Capitalism. We started a bunch of initiatives, but the one people got excited about was Conscious Capitalism. So we changed the whole organization over to Conscious Capitalism. And Michael's been on the board of directors there. And uh, so that's ConsciousCapitalism.org. We've got a big... uh, We are trying to start a movement, honestly. And uh, the book is in in support of that. We've got our first big public event that's going to occur in San Francisco, April 5th and 6th. So you can you can look that up if you're interested. So that's good. So next question. Question back there. Other questions?
1: For investors in the crowd, uh, how do you screen or come up with a list of companies, public companies that uh, practice these four tenants?
0: Uh, of course, we don't have any systematic way of doing that yet. and. Uh, but what we did for the initial list was our, my co-author Raj Sasodi had written another book called Firms of Endearment. It was published back in 2006, I think, 2006, 2007, and he identified what he called Firms of Endearment, companies that were that were loved by all of their stakeholders, loved by their customers, loved by their employees, loved by their investors, loved by their suppliers. Container store was on that list, Whole Foods was on that list. A lot of the companies that we've identified as conscious were on that list. It turns out Those that are loved by one stakeholder uh, tend to be loved by many other stakeholders. And so that formed the initial list, and that's the basis for that 10 to 5 to 1 ratio. But what you've raised is a very important question. I do believe we do need to develop screening mechanisms. By the way, consciousness is on a continuum, right? It's not like you're conscious or not conscious. We're all we're all, it's not like you arrive. I mean, I'm more conscious today, for example, than I was five years ago. Heck, I'm more conscious than I was six weeks ago before I uttered one of the F words you're not allowed to utter in our society. But that's helped me make, become more conscious. And uh, so we do need to develop those criteria, and I hope you'll be the one to do it. Thanks for volunteering. We have a question over here. You had a question?
1: well i'm a fan i'm a fan of your store and i'm a fan of you one of
0: the questions that uh... Co- occurs to me is the difference between conscious capitalism and social and entrepreneurism can you kind of help me with that uh... social entrepreneurship you mean or or, are well um, in a sense let me make a distinction first between corporate social responsibility and conscious capitalism which we do in the book because the first People don't like to create new categories in their minds. So, when they first capture, encounter a new idea, the first thing you want to do is you try to slot it into a category you've already created. And we don't want to be slotted into the corporate social responsibility. So, we actually, very early on in the book, tackle that one and try to explain how we're different than that. Corporate social responsibility basically is just taking the traditional, profit centric, traditional business model and then grafting onto it. Uh, a social responsibility or an environmental responsibility department. generally, a corporation has a CSR department that generally reports up through public relations and that reports up through marketing. And so a lot but it doesn't transform the nature of the of the business. It's still the same type of corporation it was before. It just now has a new department that hopefully will help the brand image of the corporation. So if you hear about that called greenwashing. Well, that's why, because it doesn't, the corporation itself may not make any changes at all, it's still doing the same old stuff, but now they've got this, this corporate social responsibility whose goal is simply to enhance the reputation of the corporation. Now, Conscious capitalism takes social responsibility and puts it into the purpose of the business. It makes the community stakeholder and the environmental stakeholder at the center with all the other major stakeholders as to why the business exists in the first place. So to ask whether a conscious business is socially, responsibility, uh, is socially responsible is sort of ridiculous a question, because of course they are. Inherently they are. They don't need a, Whole Foods has no CSR department, and a whole company's CSR in a sense. So that's the difference. Now social entrepreneurship usually refers to entrepreneurs who, who make solving a social problem or social issue their primary goal. Now, that raises an interesting question. Is Whole Foods Market a social entrepreneur type of company or is it some other more traditional entrepreneur type company? Well, our company's market, we have the highest market capitalization of any food retailer in the United States. In fact, last time I looked, it was higher than Kroger and Safeway and Super Value combined. Uh, But so it looks like we're pretty good from the traditional entrepreneurship. On the other hand, our business exists to fulfill the higher higher purposes, such as Healing America, 69% of Americans are overweight, 36% are obese, and 80% of the dollars we spend on health care are for diseases that no one should ever get that correlate very closely with diet and lifestyle. I'm talking about heart disease, stroke, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, autoimmune diseases, and even cancer. Although cancer is a little bit of a wild card. There are a lot of factors there, but diet does correlate very highly with it. So we want to help heal America by, by, A, educating people about healthy principles of a healthy diet and selling them healthy foods. Are we social entrepreneurship or are we traditional entrepreneurship? The answers were both. But on the other hand, there are certain enterprises that cannot find a way to make a profit. So I, I always think of social entrepreneurship as kind of the nonprofit sector that, is really trying to solve problems that the business sector cannot solve because the business sector can't find a way to make money doing it. So I think social entrepreneurship carries over a little bit to the for profit sector as well, but it's usually in people's minds linked with the nonprofit sector. By the way, nonprofits get higher purpose. I've never met a nonprofit organization that was doing anything that was successful that didn't have a higher purpose. They can teach business about higher purpose. And business can teach nonprofits about how to be effective in this world. I sit on five nonprofit boards. They're, and I'm not going to name them, but they're remarkably ineffective in my mind, except for maybe one. Uh, they, they could use a lot more business disciplines in the way they go about doing things. Having a higher purpose is not enough. You have to be effective in this world. And the nonprofit sector can learn a lot from its business uh, brethren. So, is that a good enough answer? Okay.
1: And Bob Kentner, our chairman, you get the last question. Last question. Your business operations and employees are largely here in the U.S. How transportable are the principles you're advocating when American businesses go overseas and do business and hire people in uh, foreign countries and foreign cultures?
0: I think they're completely trans—two uh, of the companies that we named in, our, in, our, in the book that we singled out were—one uh, was from South Korea, POSCO, the fourth largest steel manufacturer in the world. I mean, these guys are an amazing company. They're, they, I was blown away as we got into studying them. Uh, they're incredibly environmentally conscious. They are—the they are only company I know that rivals their commitment to their suppliers is the container store. PASCO does amazing things by its suppliers. They care deeply about the people that work for them. Very responsible company, very conscious. And the Tata Group in India, which is well over 100 years of age, which is one of the biggest corporations in India, is sort of an amazing uh, company as well. We document in the book, we tell the story about that, that uh, the massacre that occurred in uh, the Taj uh, Hotel in Bombay, uh, Mumbai. That was, a, that was a Tata Hotel. And I'm not going to retell the story here, but it was, you should, when you read the book, that story, I can't think about it without bringing tears to my mind about how that company responded to that tragedy. It was astounding. Uh, so these principles are timeless principles. They're not American principles. Having a higher purpose, caring about all your stakeholders, servant leadership, and uh, humanistic empowered cultures, that's uh, universal, universally applicable. And... Uh, I expect to see it universally applied. I'm looking forward in my old age to seeing conscious capitalism spread. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for not wearing a tie. So it's a pleasure to present you with the World Affairs Council official tie, see? And it even matches your shirt. See, I don't know how to put a tie on. (laughs)
1: For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.